What is going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Mind vs. Muscle Podcast. Today is another one of my favorites, a Q&A. I got a lot of good questions, and I actually reached out to my email list and also my uh, my Instagram following and just said, yo, I'm offering two things for this week because it's the holidays I feel like giving. Ask me anything, and I will individually help you out, or... DM me or email back and let me know, yo, I want to get on a call, let's chat. And I literally had got on the phone so far this week with like, uh, so it's Thursday now, I think I had four or five calls this week, I have a few more tomorrow that I'm going to run through, uh, and I'm setting a couple up for next week. And honestly, it's it, this is one of the coolest things I've done in a long time. Um, one of my mentors, Jason Phillips, was the one that suggested it. He was like, dude, this week is all about content, just, just tell people you'll get on the phone with them. And I thought it was kind of weird at first. And when I jumped on the phone with these people, it's – few of them I literally had no idea who were before this call happened. Um, but they knew me and they had they felt I had something that could help them out. And I got on the phone um, for 30 minutes with them and just literally troubleshooted their issues, whether it was business or their body personally. But it was really cool and it was really fun just, just bullshitting with people. So um, really, really interesting and it just goes to show that like – communication is such an undervalued concept or just aspect of life like just talking to people like the other day some dude came up to me in starbucks and i ended up having a 20-minute conversation with him um i was really busy but you know what at the end of the day those little things in life are really what matters so um i don't know (laughs) what the point of me telling you this is but it just it's this encouragement to like just go just go try just go talk go experience go don't be afraid to interact with people man it's just it's such an undervalued thing but anyway Today we got a dope Q&A, a lot of great questions, um, and uh, let's get right into it. All right, so today's going to be a little bit different. I'm not going to name the person that actually asked the question because I, I really just pulled, uh, I think I have five or maybe six questions here that I got multiple times. I got, I don't even know how many questions this week, quite a bit, but I had a couple that really uh, stood out or that were asked multiple times. So I'm just going to leave the names blank and I'm just going to go through them one by one. Um, And the first one I got, which is actually the one I got the most, was how do we get rid of self-doubt? So I think self-doubt is an interesting thing to consider because we all have it, right? And, And even the biggest names in any industry, really, not just fitness, but just any industry that are very successful, very happy, seem like they just have it all together, experience self-doubt. That's one thing I've really learned um, and it helped me become more accepted or uh, accept more of my own self-doubt just because I realized that I wasn't the only one out there, right? So if anybody's listening to this and you are experiencing a lot of self-doubt and it's hard for you to get the ball rolling or maybe you keep put it putting off your fitness goals, maybe you keep putting off that job you actually want or quitting the shitty job you already have um, or putting off that difficult conversation you have to have with your loved one, whatever that may be because you're doubting yourself, just know that you're not alone. There's a ton of people out there that experience the same thing and there's a ton of people out there that you would never guess that actually go through that that are absolutely going through that just like you are. Now, things are different, right? Somebody might be doubting themselves about making a million-dollar move, and some people might be doubting themselves about losing 10 pounds. But at the end of the day, we all go through self-doubt, and 
I learned that um, heavily just from working with mentors, like anybody out there, like I highly suggest, um, and that's actually a question I got a lot this week too, was like, what do you suggest doing um, if I'm trying to learn more on blank? Like I had people asking about marketing, about uh, starting an online business, um, about opening a gym. Um, I had people just talking about like, how do I get better at my craft? And every single person I answered the same way. I said, I I highly suggest you get a mentor. Um, Whether that mentor is two years ahead of you or 10 years ahead of you in the game, they're ahead of you. And they're going to be able to guide you through a process that they went through um, and, and not make the same mistakes they did when going through that process, right? So I think that's huge. But one thing I learned from my mentors was that self-doubt happens to everybody. And I learned it because I was mentoring under people who were making way more money than me, who have been in the game way longer than me, and who, when I looked at, seemed like they just have it all, right? Their businesses are doing multiple six figures, if not a million plus. Um, They have a happy wife and kids. They got a big house. They travel. Like Everything just seems so positive. Little do I know, every morning they wake up like a big ball of stress and anxiety, Fearing that they're not going to be able to withstand or hold on to everything they have, which is just a story in your head, which is my first point. Besides the fact that everybody goes through this, my first point is it's just a story. And it like it's easier said than done, but at the end of the day, it really is just a story. Our brain, unfortunately, will create stories, almost always negative ones, that will try to distract us or pull us away from the goal we want, right? Because self-doubt is really just a block, a roadblock, or a speed bump that stops us from moving forward towards our goals. Um, And it comes down to not believing in yourself, right? And uh, it doesn't matter what your goal is. Now, I specifically told these people, and I actually filmed a video about it. Um, I think it went out today. Today's the 21st, so this will air tomorrow on the 22nd. Um, you might be able to check on my Instagram and see a self-doubt Instagram video and Facebook, but I'm not 100% sure. I can't remember which one I posted today, but <laughs> um shows how on top of my schedule I am. Uh, but I talked about three things that really help cure self-doubt. Now, at the end of the day, everybody's self-doubt is going to be individual. So I can't tell you, hey, this is the the guru trick. This is the hack or whatever it may be. But I can show you some specific things that have helped me a ton. And just being more confident, having more certainty in myself and just believing that I will accomplish whatever the hell it is I want to accomplish. Um, These three things have literally separated me personally uh, from who I used to be and from a lot of my competitors. And being able to just nonstop push forward because I got rid of so much self-doubt. Okay. Number one is embracing change. Like change is scary and that's okay. But the reason I'm able to remove self-doubt is because I accept change. I embrace change, right? The only thing constant in life is change. That's a quote by like Socrates or something, but it's, it's fucking true, right? So if you come to terms and just realize that no matter where you're at now, something is, is going to change eventually, um, sooner rather than later, And that change is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be scary. But you know that at the end of that change, you are going to come out a bigger, stronger, and just more successful person every single time. Then then you can start beating this self-doubt because you are not afraid of change, right? Half the time, we doubt ourselves because we do not think we can handle the change. We doubt ourselves in this change. That's the big key here is like you need to come to terms with embracing change. Now, that could be looking at a quote every day about change. That could be looking at yourself in the mirror or meditating and repeating mantras around change. Like I will embrace change. I will embrace change. Just repeat that over and over again. 
Embracing change leads to success and happiness. Repeat that over and over again. You can create any mantra, meditate on it, and repeat that shit over and over again, and it will ingrain that into your brain. So I highly suggest doing that. Um, Obviously, self-development books will help you as well, anything on change. The second thing is going to be gratitude. I'm a firm believer that gratitude is the most powerful fuel to anything, right? Because what we are grateful for today will fuel things that we can achieve and be grateful for tomorrow, plain and simple. And I don't know about you, but if you're grateful, I think it's physically impossible to be sad, pissed off, angry, depressed, anything, to be in a shitty mood. It's literally impossible to be in a shitty mood if you are grateful. Try it and prove me wrong. I dare you. It's just facts. So the first step in overcoming this self-doubt is becoming grateful for everything you have in your life, right? Um, A lot of times we get so caught up in the grind. We get so caught up in what we should be doing, what we could have done, what we want, what we need, quote unquote. Instead of just focusing on like, man, I have a lot to be grateful for in my life, right? And that leads to the second thing, and that's appreciation. And again, if you're appreciative of not only the people around you, but mainly yourself, you can't be pissed or angry. So to put those two last two together, something I do every single morning, non-negotiable, no matter what, whether I'm traveling, whether I'm staying at a family's house out of town, it doesn't matter. Like I do this every single morning, preferably in my leather-bound journal, but if not, I do it in my notes on my phone. I write three to five things that I'm extremely grateful for in my life. Usually one of them has to do with Shannon regardless because I want to constantly show gratitude to the woman I love in my life. And then one of those things is something for myself. So it's it's really just like a, a great a gratitude slash appreciation towards myself. Something I love, I'm grateful for, and I appreciate about myself. If you cannot love yourself, you will not allow anybody else to love you. And if you can't have love in your life, like – not to get sappy on you guys, but you can't have anything, right? There's no happiness without love, and that's not just like romantic love. It's it's on a whole it's, – it's on every single level and everything in your life. So I firmly believe that self-appreciation is one of the biggest keys to getting rid of self-doubt. Now, there's a lot of people listening to this who run businesses, um, so self-doubt for you will be growing that business, right? And there's a lot of people here who are just trying to get in better shape, trying to lose belly fat, trying to look better, feel good about being naked. You know how it goes, and and it's the same thing. For for you, self-doubt is being able to achieve that body you want. But if you don't appreciate where you're at now, you will never be able to get further than you are at right now. That deserved a long-ass pause, (laughs) if you couldn't tell. So I'm huge, huge on self-appreciation and and because of that, like I, I need to make one last point on that is like acceptance is everything, right? And permission is everything. A lot of people just do not get to the next step in their business, in their body, in their life, in their relationships because they do not give themselves permissions to succeed. They are fearful of judgment upon themselves and upon others whether they fail or succeed. They don't want to know what people will think if they fail. They don't want to know what, how people will judge them if they succeed and go like quote unquote big time, Right? But you need to be able to give yourself permission to succeed. You need to give yourself permission to love yourself, to appreciate yourself, to be grateful for where you're at now. And every time something good happens in your life, you need to be able to um, accept that and and give yourself permission to go all in on yourself. I see so many people that just – they're hung up and they're not moving forward because they are not going all in on themselves. And they can't go in all on themselves because they do not appreciate and they do not give themselves permission to go all in on themselves. 
period. And the last thing I do for that, um, this is kind of, I don't know, this doesn't really help self, like isn't really targeted towards self-doubt. I mean, I'm sure it can help. Uh, but another thing I do in my journal right after that is I write one victory of the day. So for today, I wrote something about yesterday, right? Every single morning, I write one victory from the day before, whether that is a small little win or it's a massive win in my in my life. I have to write one win no matter what. All right, so to completely flip the script on what we're talking about now, um, another question I got was, this is uh, this is actually was asked. I, the reason I don't want to say his name is because I know he's not from the U.S. and I have no idea how to pronounce him. So if you're listening, man, I'm sorry, but you know who you are if, if you read this question. He he saw my training hierarchy uh, infographic on Instagram and he said, "Do you prefer high volume slash low intensity or high intensity slash low volume?" Assuming that frequency stays the same. So let's define these things real quick. Low intensity. Uh, or sorry, high intensity would be high load, so low volume. So if we look at six sets of three, let's say we'll take the deadlift. So if we're doing six sets of three on the deadlift at 85 to 90% of our one rep max, that's a high intensity and it's a low volume because we're only doing three reps versus doing four or five sets of 10 to 12 at like 65 or 70% of our one rep max, which would be lower intensity because the percentage of our one rep max is lower, the load on the bar is lower, but the volume is higher, right? Because we're doing four, four or five sets of 10 to 12. Um, so he asked, which one do I prefer? Now, that's an extremely relative question. Like, what is your goal, first of all? Uh, but but my basic answer to him is neither, right? Uh, there is no one way to do anything. I believe if you want pure strength and power, you should still do both of those. If you want pure hypertrophy, you should still do both of those. The way you want to split your training up is essentially hitting each muscle group two to three times a week. Ideally, two times a week because you can hit it hard that day, have a little more intent, have a little more focus on that day, and still recover enough. Plus, when we look at lower upper lower body splits or full body splits, you're going to have some crossovers, right? If I'm doing a plank on one day, I'm still technically working a little bit of my pecs, a little bit of my triceps, a little bit of my shoulders while I'm holding that plank. Or even like a barbell deadlift. I'm still working my lats a little bit. I'm still working my upper body by creating tension. So it's not completely isolated to, to those two upper body days. So two times a week frequency is ideal. And in the, in the sense of which one I prefer with high volume, low intensity versus uh, high intensity low volume would really be um, splitting it up to be two-thirds of your focus right so we have uh, out of threes we're gonna go if your strength and power is like let's say you are a strength athlete and your main focus is to lift more weight and be more explosive then I think two-thirds of your total volume throughout the week should be in that that lower volume higher intensity range so you're lifting heavier weights for lower reps because that's your main focus. But I do believe that one-third of your training should be hypertrophy-focused, those higher reps, endurance focus on those higher reps because that is also going to contribute to the skill and the um, improvement of your main focus, which is strength and power. So just because you're a strength and power athlete does not mean you should neglect the other modalities of training. The same goes with hypertrophy. If you want to build muscle, you should probably have two-thirds of your training in the uh, lower intensity, so 65 to 80% range of your one rep max, and you should be doing a lot of higher rep stuff, 8s, 10s, 12s, 15s, even some 20 to 25 rep stuff, so higher volume. Um, And then one-third of your training should still be some strength work because if you don't improve your strength, you're not going to be able to improve your overall volume over time. So no matter what, you can't go down into one camp because you will plateau sooner and you will plateau harder. 
So let's say you do all of your training in the hypertrophy range, um, high volume, low intensity, because that's all you really care about is building muscle. Well, I guarantee you in a matter of two, three, four, maybe six months if you're newer to training, you're going to hit a big wall and you're not going to be able to progress. Then you're going to have to go back and start strength training heavier loads higher intensities, lower volume in order to build your strength up so you can break through those plateaus and those high rep ranges. Okay, So there's no one way to go no matter what your goal is. And my recommendation again is going to be two-thirds of your total volume, your total training should be focused around the modality that you are specifically engaged in. Now, if you equally care about strength training and hypertrophy, what I would suggest is spending eight to 12 at most Ideally nine. I would spend like a nine-week phase where you're periodizing your accessory work every three weeks um, in the in a certain modality and then completely switch the script, right? So for nine weeks, my focus is strength and power. So two-thirds of my total training is going to be focused on higher intensity, lower volume because I'm doing heavier weights. Then I'm going to deload for a week or two and then I'm going to switch the uh, flip the script and I'm going to do nine weeks of my training be two-thirds of my training being in that higher volume, lower intensity rep range. Um, because that's going to be hypertrophy focused. So you you flip the script. Um, but regardless, again, no matter what your goal is, you got to you got to hit both of them, or else you're going to plateau hard. Um, and that's that's kind of how I answered the question to him. Except I didn't take seven minutes to do it. Um, and then he asked another thing. He said, "It's kind of funny actually." He said, uh, "And what do you think about what are your thoughts on training to failure?" And don't give me the cliche trainer answer of "What about your central nervous system fatigue?" Which I thought was funny. Um, there's been a little smart ass about it, but at the, the first thing I wanted to say is, well, like, what about your central nervous system fatigue, motherfucker? <laughs> like, we got to think about that, guys, because at the end of the day, if you're training to failure all the time, you are going to be smoked. Your central nervous system is going to be fatigued as shit. You're going to be, uh, you're going to be tapping on adrenal fatigue's door, HPA axis dysfunction, um, for the medical term. And you're just going to be chronically stressed, and then all of a sudden our biofeedback is going to be shit, right? So we don't, we do not want to, um, we don't want to train to failure too much. Now, recently they did a study that actually showed training to failure showed no difference in results compared to not training to failure at all, as long as uh, volume was equated. Um, and what that means is essentially if. I'm doing, um, for an easy number, easy math, if I'm doing 200 total reps throughout the week and I'm doing 2,000 or sorry, 200,000 pounds pushed by the end of the week or month or whatever, and uh, I have two groups that are doing the exact same loads and the exact same total volume, one people train to failure, one person doesn't, the training to failure group is going to have a way higher intensity on some of those days, but because volume was equated for in both groups, they saw no beneficial difference. So there was no different results, no better results from training to failure. And what that means is those people who trained to failure really just risked their recovery. And we got to remember biofeedback, right? So like biofeedback is going to be every hormonal sign or response that our body gives us to let us know either A, it's time to go hard again, or B, it's time to cool the fuck down and chill out for a while so we can recover, right? Biofeedback is sex drive, it's metabolism, it's uh, sleep quality, it's energy, it's fatigue levels, it's cravings, it's um, the signals our body gives us to let us know whether we can push or we have to pull back. And those people who were training all out to intensity because they were training to failure all the time probably had some shitty biofeedback markers. Um, Now, obviously, if you are going to train to failure, you got to make sure that you are 
two things. One, doing it in safe lips. Like nobody should be training to failure on a back squat because that's extremely dangerous. Um, if you're trying to shoot for a one rep max because you're a competitive lifter and you have a spotter, it's a different story. But at the end of the day, that's that's a rare occasion. Like true athletes that are strength athletes are not one rep maxing on a frequent basis. Um, or B, you're going to be doing it on lifts that are have very, very little injury risk or just damage risk, right? Like an inverted row. The worst thing that can happen when you train to failure on an inverted row is you stop halfway up and let yourself down. Big deal. It's not a uh, it's not an intense weight bearing exercise that is putting pressure on your spine or your joints. Um, it's a joint friendly exercise. Um, it's a safe exercise, and it's also not a heavy load or intense exercise. It's more of a high volume exercise. You can't like really do super heavy weighted inverted rows unless you wear a weight vest, and even then, it's not crazy intense on your joints or your body period. Um, so training to failure has its place. I do use it. Um, I don't use it often. I think it's important to. Use at times to gauge your rate of perceived exertion, right? You could be doing uh, an RPE of nine um, all month on a back squat and then we have you train to failure and you realize that you were doing 150 pounds for uh, 10 reps, let's say, and you were doing it supposed to be at an RPE of nine, meaning you only you should only have about one in the tank. So it should be really difficult. Uh, but then you do 150 uh, pounds and you max out on an AMRAP, you train to failure and you get 25 reps. Well, now you know that you should probably have been doing like 185 on that squat for those 10 reps. So it's a way that you can help gauge your own intensity levels throughout your training period. So it does have uh, benefits, but as far as getting results, it's not that big of a benefit. If anything, the biggest benefit is just creating more awareness around how much you should actually be lifting and then changing your loads that you're lifting because you have that knowledge now so you can lift more weight throughout your volume throughout your training. All right. Let's see what we got here. Take a sip of my coffee. I got to I got to give a shout out real quick. Vital Proteins Collagen. Um no, I'm not sponsored by them. Um so this isn't like a paid advertisement, but Collagen Proteins by Vital Proteins. Um or no, collagen peptides, sorry, collagen peptides by Vital Proteins with some stevia and then some four sigmatic in your coffee. Fire. That's like my my daily coffee drink right now. All right, so we have another question. Calorie calculators, what gives? If I use the PN, so Precision Nutrition Calculator, I should eat around 3,000 calories. If I use normal body weight times 9 to 10, I'm below 2,000. What does this mean? So the hard part about this question is I don't know if this person is trying to lose weight. But let's just kind of – let's just break down the facts about calorie calculators, right? Do they work? The issue with calorie calculators is they're based off of estimations or based off of uh, should be's, quote unquote. Now, when we look at your specific nutrition, we have to understand that you're probably not where you should be. And that's just most of – like most people are – it's insane how many people are under eating calories. Um, now, there's a time and place to create a deficit and, yes, under eat for a period of time so you can see elicit change in your body, i.e., burn body fat and lose weight, but at the same time, you shouldn't be in a chronic deficit. So when we are, when I have somebody who's in a long-term deficit and let's say they buy my ebook, um, shameless plug in the show notes, you can get your copy, The Nutrition Hierarchy, and they plug in their numbers to find out their calories and they realize that they need to be at 12 times their body weight in calories. Well, if they do 12 times their body weight in calories, that puts them at 
2,600 calories. Right now, they're only eating 1,600. That's a 1,000 calorie difference. So one, that's scary for them because if they bump those calories up to 2,600 overnight, they're probably going to gain weight and they know that. Um, And if they don't know that and they do it, they're going to gain weight and then they're going to be pissed they bought my book. But the truth is 12 times your body weight is a healthy body uh, amount of calories to be at. It's just the fact that most people are not there. Most people Monday through Friday are eating too little so their performance goes to shit. Their recovery goes to shit. Their metabolism starts slowing down and gets accustomed to that low calorie range and it stops losing weight. Then on the weekends, they don't track their food and they binge a little bit because they get drunk and eat some street tacos or, or up here in Seattle. We call it street meat. You get some ta- uh, some hot dogs on, out in Capitol Hill. Um and then all of a sudden they have this like 10,000 calorie weekend and they wonder why they're not losing weight or why they're putting on weight and so on and so forth. Well, the truth is is that you're metabolically adapted to a lower calorie range um, and it's been too long since you were at a higher calorie range. So if you do a calorie calculator and uh, and this is – and here's the thing. is like so PN, it, he says that I should eat around 3,000 calories according to PN. Well, PN's right on point. They're smart. They know that about 12 times your body weight in calories is, is a very healthy place to be at for fat loss. About 14 times your uh, body weight in calories is going to be around maintenance. And if you go up to 16 times your body weight in calories, you're looking at putting on mass. Like that's for a hard gainer. Um, Now those vary slightly, right? So 15 times your body weight might be maintenance for some people. 13 might be for some people. Um, And obviously for some people who have been under eating, eight times your body weight might um, might be your maintenance. But what I tend to look at is when you start getting down towards 10 times your body weight in calories is when you are tapping on that like thin line of hormonal damage. Um, that's when you really start need to, need to start ta- uh, watching closely like your biofeedback. So again, how's your hunger? How's your sleep? How's your stress? How's your mood? How's your performance? How's your recovery? How's your fatigue levels? You got to pay attention to those things um, when you start tapping around 10 times your body weight. Now, some people will get all the way down to eight times their body weight before they even experience any negative biofeedback markers, and that's okay. Some people are just more resilient to dieting. Um, Some people, like, I'll have to really get aggressive, and I'll have to rip their calories down to get them to even lose any fat. But at the same token, I can add those calories back in, and they're not going to gain a bunch of fat. Um, Whereas other people, I can remove 5% of their diet, just barely anything. We take 10 no, not 10, usually like 15, 25 grams of carbs away or 5 to 10 grams of fat away. So it's a small amount of calories and all of a sudden, boom, like they're dropping fat. Any any small change will elicit change. I'm the opposite. I need to be aggressive with my deficit and I can bump my calories back up afterwards and I'm not really going to gain much weight at all. So um, it really depends where you're at. But at the end of the day, um, what I would tell you is that the PN calculators are pretty accurate. Um, if it's telling you you should be at 3,000 calories a day to lose weight, then I probably would agree with it. Um, and that just means that you're in a place where you need to slowly work your calories up. So you might want to put your fat loss on halt. You might want to find a coach that can help reverse diet you. Um, now, if you are already around 3,000 calories and you're not losing weight, what I would say is you have wiggle room to cut. Um, from those and get down towards 10 times your body weight and really see some some progress. But I wouldn't go past that eight-week mark. And when your biofeedback starts getting pretty aggressive with how um, – with the signals that are going on, then I would probably pull back and try to bring it back up towards that 12, 14 times your body weight range for at least enough time to resynthesize your hormones. Um, so I think that's really important. It, and I broke that down in uh, my, my article on my blog 
um, nutritional periodization or periodizing your nutrition, I think it was called. Um, and I talked about this exact thing. Like there's periods of times where you can go in a deficit, but you can't go too low and this is how long and, and this is when you need a diet break and then you need to get back into it or how long you should be at maintenance depends on where you're at and blah, blah, blah. So if you want more information on that, I would go there. Uh, but overall, I would say that like, 10 to 12 times your body weight is going to be still a healthy range of uh, good fat loss. Um, anything below 10 is when we start tapping with uh, hormonal dysfunction. Um, depending on the person, it can happen quicker rather than later. Just Again, just depends on the person um, and their diet history. Um, and then around 14 times your body weight is going to be more like uh, maintenance calories. Anything above that, you're probably going to be gaining weight. Unless you're just like a genetic freak and you can just burn through fuel like crazy. And if that's you, I hate you. All right. We got another one on NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. How to manage NEAT. Does it really work? What's enough? How do we set it? How do you program it into your clients' coaching programs? So um, I think NEAT is awesome, right? Like NEAT tends to be like – you know what's funny is they did studies that showed – Lean individuals who are naturally lean just year-round actually tend to have a higher NEAT level automatically. It's been shown that people who are constantly moving um, and fidgeting and or people who lean – I should say this. It's been found that lean, super lean individuals actually just automatically move more, stand more, fidget more, talk more, um, and that's just their nature, right? So all those things are just bodily movements that you do on a regular basis, and that's why NEAT is called non-activity. Um, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. It means that you're not purposely exercising to burn calories, but you are burning calories because you're doing something. Um, so how do you manage NEAT? It's really hard to manage any form of NEAT besides steps per day um, because it's hard to say, hey, I want you to stand for seven hours per day. Hey, I, like you went, you mowed the lawn. That's a good exercise of NEAT. Uh, can you mow the lawn every day? Like there's there's nothing really you can do besides steps, um, and you can stand more, I guess. Like the Apple Watch has like a like a stand goal that you can set. So if you have an Apple Watch, you can set a stand goal so you're not sitting constantly. Uh, but standing is just, in my opinion, is better for posture. It will burn a little bit, neat calories, but since it's not like consistent movement, it's not going to do that much for you. Um, now, walking is great for you, so you can set a neat goal of. Like the generic one is 10,000 steps a day Um, and the way you would manage that is really relative, right? Like I can tell you 10,000 steps a day but if you're already stepping 9,500 on average every single day, well, 500 steps extra a day isn't going to make a huge difference in order for you to really elicit a lot of change in your body composition. Now, if I tell you 10,000 steps a day and right now you're stepping 2,000, like, yeah, you're going to see some results quick. But I would err on the side of less adjustments at the first, right? I would bump somebody up from 2,000 to 5,000 first because we got to remember the body is an adaptation machine. Just like it adapts to cardio, just like it adapts to calorie intake, it adapts to neat because, again, it's just caloric burn. So what I would focus on is making smaller changes so your body doesn't adapt too quickly. So that might look like going from 2,000 to 5,000, waiting a little while, then going to 7,500, waiting a little while, then going to 10,000, and then probably stopping around there and looking at a different source of uh, creating a deficit because anything above 10,000 steps is like really going out of your way. I believe and studies have proven this that 
10,000 steps a day is not only going to help burn more calories a day for most people, um, and the reason they say this is because 10,000 steps a day um, equals 70,000 steps a week, which equals 3,500 calories, which equals one pound of fat loss per week. Now, obviously, if you're already stepping 5,000, that'd be more like a half a pound. But again, double your steps, you're losing a half a pound a week. So it really does make a difference. Um the issue is, is, is again, you're going to add adapt, and you can't like just keep going up until you're hitting fifty thousand steps a day, which is just ridiculous. Um, so you got to remember that. Now, what I would do is, I would use, I use that as a tool at the beginning, right? So if I put somebody on a on a caloric deficit, or I put somebody on a new macro ratio, or something. I might not want to tamper with that for a little bit because I do believe the body takes – like people hate to like be aware of this or admit this or understand this. But it, your body will take a minimum of two to three weeks but sometimes four to six weeks. Some For some people, even longer. But four to six weeks to adapt and change and start creating change for yourself. So if you started a new macronutrient diet, you shouldn't – tweak your macros after two weeks because you need to give your body time to adapt to the stressor it's being placed upon. It's the same thing with training, right? You can't follow a training program for two weeks and be like, oh, this shit doesn't work. I'm not building any muscle. Well, it's like, damn, dude, like be patient. Wait a little bit longer. Same thing goes with neat. Um, so I will implement this. I'll implement a diet plan and I'll wait a couple weeks. If they're not seeing a lot of change and I know that it's just a patient thing, maybe I'll tweak neat, right? Maybe we add some steps per day if they're willing to track. But another thing to consider with this is 10,000 steps a day is just a healthy place to be at. You are going to be sitting less. Your joints are going to be moving more. You're going to get more blood flow and oxygen to your limbs, which is going to promote better health all around. Um, Cardiovascular-wise, health, heart, heart health-wise, you're going to be in a better place. Um, all these health measures are going to be in a better place because you're just simply moving more frequently day to day. Um, so I highly suggest more steps through knee just because of that. Um, so... What is NEAT? Non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Does it really work? Absolutely it works. How do you manage it? Well, everybody is different, but it's relative. So don't add 10,000 steps to somebody's day. First, track their steps. Then add a couple thousand and keep adding a couple thousand every few weeks until you get to about 10,000. Um, that's going to be your, your, your point, right? If they're not a very quick responder, um, like for me, for example, um, and you need to uh, up the steps quite a bit to get some change, or you need to drop calories quite a bit to see some change, then you're probably going to guess that you're going to need to up the steps quite a bit right off the get-go. So maybe you do add 4,000 instead of 2,000 at the beginning because you want to see that change more rapidly for them. Um, And what's enough? I mean... That's relative. Um, there's some people who do who can easily get fifteen thousand a day, but like I really do believe that once you get past ten thousand is when you start to push it, and it starts to get hard to comply or adhere to it within your lifestyle. So everything needs to be back down to adherence. All right. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt the podcast real quick, but I wanted to take a brief moment to shout out Reebok One. If you are a trainer and you are looking to be part of a community that is not only supporting the fitness movement, but is building and growing uh, new things and new opportunities and new courses and new things that are just going to teach trainers how to be better trainers, Reebok One is the place to go because they have a lot of things coming in the near future. I promise you it is something you want to be a part of. Now, what they are offering is 40% off your first purchase off any Reebok gear and then 25% off for life. So if you are a trainer and you want to be a part of the Reebok One community plus get some killer deals, I highly suggest going down to the show notes. Click the link that says ReeboqOne.com slash boom boom. Sign up today. You'll be in the loop for all the awesome things that are coming in the future, but you'll also get a killer discount right at the get-go. 
All right, let's get back to the show. This last question um, is one that is like near and dear to my heart lately because I've just – I've experienced – working with so many clients that are under eating and and I'm not exaggerating when I say like maybe 60% or more of the clients who reach out to me are actually under eating which is crazy to think about um and I and I think the reason being is because the media makes you believe that a diet is healthy and technically diet means deficit to people but in reality a diet should be a way of eating for health like a diet is supposed to be healthy um the issue is is diet is defined as deficit now and when people believe they need to be in a deficit year round they start seeing a lot of negative hormonal implications and i see a lot of people under eating because they get on a diet they start seeing results and then the results slow down and they don't know what to do um so the question was is under eating really that serious how do i know if under eating is killing my results and at the end of the day like yes it is that serious because under eating, again, like you need to periodize this, right? Everybody should be in a deficit at parts of the year because you need to be in a deficit to lose weight. It's true. But when you've been in a deficit for 12, 15, 16, 18, 20 weeks straight, you're not going to be losing a lot of weight anymore unless you have 50 to 100 pounds to lose. The issue I find is people who have less than 50 pounds to lose or once upon a time they did, but they've been dieting for a year plus now. Now that they've been dieting for this long, they're in a place hormonally where their biofeedback is very crappy, um, like I was talking about earlier. So when they approach me, they're like, man, I'm not, I'm not eating much food. My performance has has been stalled out. I'm not lifting more weights. I'm not doing better in the gym um, like I used to be. Um, I feel like my metabolism is slow. Um, some people even tell me that their sex drive is low. And at the end of the day, like I'm their coach, so I'm okay like hearing it out and I want to help them provide that because nobody's sex drive should be low. And actually their sex drive is, is a very good indicator that their hormonal hormones are suffering. Um, but their sex drive will be low. Their mood swings are crazy. Their cravings are through the roof. They're stressed out more often than not. Um, they're, they're like restless, right? You're so tired all day and then you go to lay in bed and you can't fucking fall asleep. Um, so there's a lot of different indicators of, of, uh, bad biofeedback but essentially, they've put themselves in this place from chronic dieting. See, when there's two main things that um, that cause issues hormonally, cause our biofeedback to go down the hole, um, and that's going to be under recovery and under eating. But both of them are essentially under recovering if we think about it. Right? We're overtraining, uh, we're overutilizing intensity, we're not eating enough calories, and we're not sleeping enough. Then we have stressors in our life from our family and kids to our work to whatever it may be that causes more stress on our central nervous system, more stress on our gut health, more stress on every aspect of our body. This causes more recovery needs and yet we are not sleeping enough or eating enough to manage that. Now, we got to remember that everything is a stressor and we want stress, right? When we train, we are placing massive stress on our body. But the cool thing is, is when we stress the body and break it down, its job is to stop, recover, replenish, rebuild, and then we get better. But it can only do that for so long. And that's the same thing with dieting. When we diet, we're putting a stress on the body. The body has to adapt by burning fat. But at some point, it's going to adapt too much and you need to reverse diet up and then come back down. So what I would say is under eating can be an issue for anybody who is doing it for too long. Under eating at times is smart because that's how you're going to lose weight. But if you've been chronically under eating um, or you fear that you've been chronically under eating or maybe you're just worried that you've, you're, you've are in too big of a deficit or you've been in a deficit too long, 
then I would highly suggest tracking your biofeedback. Start recording in a journal your calories, also track your sleep, how well you're training, your energy levels. Are you restless? Like, um, do you feel like like do you have brittle nails and hair? Do you have dry skin a lot? Do you um, are just fatigued like crazy, stressed, cravings, hunger, um, moody? Like all these different things I've been talking about. Like just just record your biofeedback. That's going to be the biggest thing because that is going to tell you if under eating is serious for you. Now, if you're in a deficit and you're not experiencing any of those things, you're sleeping well, you're performing well, you're on point, you're happy then don't freak out about under eating because you're in a healthy deficit and you're in a place where you haven't been dieting for too long. Um, Because I have clients right now that are under eating, but I'm doing it on purpose. And then there's going to be a point in time where I bring their calories back up. And then there's going to be a point in time where I bring them right back down to keep progressing, right? So like if you've been dieting for 8, 10, 12 weeks, maybe you're not quite at your goal yet, but you're starting to experience these biofeedback markers, then you need to pull back and put the fat loss on pause for one, two, even four to six weeks at least so you feel better and those biofeedback markers not only get up but they maintain up for a good couple weeks. Then you go back into the diet and you create a deficit again. Um, so you need to periodize these results. So under eating um, is serious, yes. Um, it, there's, time, there's a time and place for it. And it it can be killing your results because if you do it for too long, your body will stall and it will stop building muscle, stop performing better, and it will stop burning fat. All right, guys. That's all I have for you today. Those are some fucking great questions. I'm pumped about them. Um, If you have any more questions, guys, make sure you jump in the Mind vs. Muscle team page. You can click the link in the description below um, and you can ask us anything in that group um, individually and you can ask for critiques. You can post your videos. So There's a lot of good info going on in the Mind vs. Muscle team page on Facebook. So check out the link in the profile. Click it. Join it. I will see you guys next time on the Mind vs. Muscle podcast. If you love the Mind vs. Muscle podcast, want more free content, and you want to support the movement, share this podcast and leave us a five-star rating and review. To get your questions answered on the next episode, see the show notes for our social media handles and hashtag Mind vs. Muscle.